Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Tom Nagorski. Today we return to the coronavirus for an update on the outbreak and a special look at where it all began. Until recently, a lot of people may never have heard of Wuhan, but it's a huge and important city in central China. More than 11 million people live there. And as is very well known now, it was in Wuhan that cases of pneumonia flared just a little over a month ago, the beginnings of an outbreak that has now infected more than 20,000 people, more than 400 of whom have died. Before we get to Wuhan, these important updates. One week ago, we spoke to Dr. Thomas Inglesby, director of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, who told us there were two fundamental metrics to watch as information emerged from inside China. First, the rate of spread. Second, the rate of fatalities. Well, we have fresh evidence now that the rate of spread is high. Comparable, Dr. Inglesby and others are saying, to influenza, the flu. In the last week alone, the number of cases has tripled. The virus has been detected in more than two dozen countries, though important to note that more than 99% of the reported cases are in China. This coronavirus is, in the language of public health officials, an efficient traveler. As for the fatality rate, there may at least be some encouraging news there. The death rate for the coronavirus outbreak stands at about 2% and it is falling. As the experts have told us, it's common for the death rate to drop, as typically the more severe cases are seen earlier on. By way of comparison, the death rate for the SARS outbreak in 2003 was much higher, above 10%. Now there's a big caveat here. Anecdotal reports from inside Wuhan suggest that some people have become ill and may even have died without ever reaching a hospital. So there may well have been deaths that have gone unreported. In the meantime, China continues to clamp down on travel, particularly inside Wuhan, and many countries and air carriers have now shut down all travel to China. It's hard to fathom what the shutdown of a city of 11 million people is like, what it means for residents, the vast majority of whom remain healthy. Mu Yi Xiao is the visuals editor for the Asia Society publication Chinafile. She's from Wuhan. Her parents still live there. From day one, Mu Yi, here in New York, has been gathering information from family and friends in Wuhan. She's watching and trying to learn everything she can about the outbreak and how it's affecting people in the place she calls home. Mu Yi spoke with the editor of Chinafile, Susan Jakes. Jakes reported on the SARS outbreak from China for Time magazine. Let's start at the very beginning. How and when did you first begin to become aware that the new sickness that we now call 2019 and COVID or 2019 novel coronavirus was infecting people in Wuhan? Um, I remember it was December 30th um, and I was actually at my husband's home and we were waiting for the new year to come. And then a close friend in China who's in China, but who lives in Shanghai, uh, he sent me a screenshot um, of a Douban post, a, a post on Douban, which is a Chinese social media. Um, and the post is about these people in this group chat talking about, uh, you know, like several cases of SARS-like virus infected patients found in hospitals. And, um, you know, he is a very good, the friend is a very good journalist and he works at uh, Chinese media. So I thought, you know, like, 
if he got alerted, then I should too. Um, so I just immediately send that message to my parents as well and call them to see if they heard anything. You know, and also my uncle is a doctor. I asked them if they heard anything from my uncle. Um, yeah, so that's when I first heard about this thing. And what have they heard? Had your parents heard anything? Had your uncle heard anything? Um, at that time, my parents have not talked to my uncle yet, which was, you know, December 30th. Uh, and, but they have heard something. Uh, they've seen the same post in their own, you know, community group chat because, you know, they're in Wuhan and there are people around them talk about it already. Uh, so they heard about it, but um, they they're, they're um, they said they will be careful, but they don't seem to be that alerted. So we were, we talked about it, and we, and they were just telling me that they will keep it in mind. And I told them to try to not to go to you know places that are crowded. Um, and they actually followed that um, in the following days. Um, they followed yeah. your advice. Yeah, they followed my advice. Like they didn't go to anything too crowded. Uh, and also, like, we, I checked with them if they have any masks at home. Uh, and I, you know, previously, when I, every time when I went back to Wuhan, um, I actually kept a lot of masks for pollution. Uh, so we've had a lot of, like, um, the anti-pollution masks, which, which works for, just, like, daily life, you know, prevent the virus. So they had a lot of stuff in stock, in stock at home. Um, yeah. But then we reach um, the 22nd of... Uh, January. I have. I had actually just landed in Hong Kong then, and uh, the news suddenly broke that uh, Wuhan was going to be completely locked down. That people living there wouldn't be allowed to travel, and all of a sudden, this rush of information uh, started pouring out uh, into the onto social media and into the press. Uh, that suggested uh, a far larger outbreak. What were your communications with your uh, parents like that day? I was, um, I, call, I called them uh, very early in the morning in their time because I want to just wake them up to let them go get some, you know, food in stock because I told them, you know, if you go to the supermarket late, then people um, might, you know, um, you like all the food might already run out. Um, I messaged them when the news first came out. I think that was like around 2 p.m. Like it, it, it's our afternoon in the U.S. as in their midnight. And I messaged them and they probably got waking up by my message. So they replied me. They were like surprised as well. And then I called them in a couple of hours. Uh, because they woke up very early. Um, so we just like, uh, my, and then my mom wake my dad up and just like let her, let him to go to the supermarket around like 8 a.m. Uh, to prepare a bunch of food. Yeah, and before, like one day before that, I was actually talking with them um, about, you know, maybe changing their flight ticket uh, because they had a flight ticket uh, to the U.S. to visit me in early March. And I, I, of course, I didn't like the idea. They just right now live in the um, Epic Center so that I wanted to, you know, kind of get them out from Wuhan. I was thinking about, them, thinking about that. Um, but then, you know, one day later, um, Wuhan got shut down. So I kind of like lost the chance. And what has life for your parents 
been like since then? What's a typical day for them under lockdown? Um, so after they shopped on January 22nd, they never stepped out uh, of their apartments once. So they have been at home for almost like 10 days, like 10 days already. So a typical day is, you know, they used to have three meals a day, but now they tell us, uh, they tell me that because um, they can get up very late and go to sleep early, so they only have two meals a day. And they watch TV, like they they kept their TV on the whole day, and and the TV is full of the coronavirus news, so they listen to that, and they uh, browse their social medias all the time. And my mom told me that like both her and my dad put on some weight, yeah, like it's pretty much like that. Yeah, and they do a lot of cleaning at home. They use the uh, sanitizers to like clean everything. Um, so they do like more housework, you know, cleaning work than usual. Yeah, but they um, eat less because they don't really move much. You're also in touch by phone, on WeChat, on probably half a dozen other social media and messaging platforms with other relatives, friends, local journalists, uh, journalists from other parts of China. What kinds of things are you hearing from them about what's happening in Wuhan right now and how it feels? I hear, so I am mostly concerned. It's just like how bad the situation really is. Uh, and, you know, in order to get to know that, uh, I, my, my mom's, the, the other younger brother, my mom has two younger brothers. So, uh, my mom's other younger brother, he works at, he's a doctor at the hospital, and that hospital is actually assigned as one of the designated hospitals to taking the uh, novel coronavirus patients. So, you know, he, um, so I chat, I try to chat with him, uh, but he's really, really busy. Um, but he does, he did tell me like uh, a little bit early on um, that the situation is very bad and like, um, they they have a lot of patients every day, and they 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 had a, like difficult time to really test everyone and diagnose everyone um, because they didn't like they couldn't do they, like their his hospital doesn't have the diagnose diagnose diagnostic kits, so they have to send people's blood sample to some other places to get it tested. So a lot of patients in their hospital cannot get diagnosed. Um, and also just like, even you get diagnosed, like they don't really have any special way to treat it. Basically, you just have to fight it off by with your immune system. So, you know, he's not very optimistic about this whole situation. Um, and just like from what he told me, I can sense, you know, if his hospital usually don't have many patients at all. And if he felt so overwhelmed right now, I, I just feel there must be a lot of patients out there. And he's a pulmonary surgeon, right? So this is actually something that affects, that relates to his area of expertise. Yeah, but right now he's like, um, you know, the whole hospital is transformed in this like the, the designated hospital. So he's right now is just like, a, is a doctor at fever department. You know, fever department is this special department they set up at the designated hospital to that, um, you know, if you are a patient with with like, suspicious symptom, you go to your hospital with a fever department and you go to see doctor there. So right now for this period of time, he works as a fever department doctor. I remember early on, uh, probably 
around the 23rd or the 24th, we heard from him and from from other reports from doctors that were circulating uh, on, on Chinese social media and in a couple of news reports that there were severe shortages of necessary supplies at a lot of Wuhan hospitals, uh, diagnostic kits for testing to see if people actually were sick with this virus, uh, protective gear. Is that still the case or um, have the supply lines improved somewhat since the central government uh, got more mobilized? It has improved a little bit, but still, you know, like uh, later, you know, later I learned that uh, the diagnosed kit is, is something that not every hospital are qualified to have because I think you have to, your hospital setup have to be up to a certain standard to do the testing. So his hospital is not one of them. And also, and actually many of the designated hospitals, they are assigned to be one of the hospitals you take in this time patients because they are not a big hospital because they usually don't have many patients. So they are empty, you know, so they can right now be transformed into a special hospital. So usually a designated hospital doesn't have a good, like a qualified setup to um, have the testing kits at their hospital. So this make this whole diagnose a process super long. That means they have to send the blood samples to a more qualified hospital that is not like designated to taking these kind of patients. Yeah, so like it's because the uh, total amount of testing kits increased because more companies joined to, you know, uh, produce them. But still, you know, like the whole diagnostic process is long. It still takes time. Um, so overall, the situation hasn't been that better that much. So what's your sense of if you're a Wuhan resident and you start to feel ill, you're coughing, you have a fever, what is the process like? You go to a fever department. How long do you wait? What happens next? Yeah, I think this is a question that many Wuhan residents is trying to figure out. And even they're, you know, they really, they, they really don't know where to go right now, you know, when they got sick. So everyone's understanding is different. Uh, and my understanding is that if you have this, if you have a symptom, you go to, um, if you, you go to your big hospital with the fever department and you try to see a doctor. Um, but, and when, once you are there, the typical, I mean, like I've talked to a friend who went to a hospital's fever department actually. Uh, and he waited from 9 a.m. all the way to 4 p.m. And like his number was like 400. And uh, by the time he like, by the time it's like 4 p.m., it's only like 100. The number only counted to 100. So like he just left. Um, so you can wait for a whole day there to just uh, to be able to see your doctor. And then you might wait for another five hours to get your get some like basic test and then if you really need like IV stuff like that then you will need to wait for another couple of hours to do that so many days many people spend like a whole day whole night just just from like seeing a doctor um, from arriving at a hospital seeing a doctor then get some treatment or medicine but I know that th things have been changing very rapidly in Wuhan I've also heard you know I have another friend who's parents got sick and right now she told me that you know the first thing they should do is to notify the community because right now 
um, it seems like the um, the city they have assigned the community level to um, be responsible to um, making record of like who is sick and in your community and to do the first step of diagnosis, like a very basic diagnosis with the community residents. Explain so, a little right bit. Now, what is a what is sorry to interrupt you. What 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 is a community? What do you mean when you say a community? Is that a group of apartment buildings, or about how many people are are in that unit of the city? The um, the Chinese phrase is "社区." Um, it's not it's not this 小区 It's not the gated community complex. It's 社区社区 is more like uh, I think in English a better English. Phrase would be neighborhood, um, and it's usually like thousands people, you know, like hundreds and thousands of people in one community.、Um, yeah, that's how they define community. So you report to your、uh, to your neighborhood or to your community, and then what happens after that? And they welcome, and they, and you either go to a community center to get like、uh, tested. Uh, for the first step, and then they will like write your name down, and then they will tell you if you can go to the hospital or not. But also, here's people who just go directly to the hospital because they don't trust the community. Because community is actually a fact that the community doesn't really have medical resources. So it's I think it's very chaotic right now. Everyone is trying to figure out. You know, everyone just really hope they don't get sick because if they get sick, they don't really know what is the best way to go. And the 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 most The status reality is just like it doesn't matter the idea that you have in your mind. You know what's where, what's the next place I should go. The there is like not enough beds and not enough doctor. So if you are not sick enough, doesn't matter if you go to a hospital directly or you go to a community directly. You just cannot get admitted to a hospital. That that's just how it is right now. How are the people that you are talking to getting their information? I mean, I understand there's probably a range, but what are the what do people see as the best sources of information, either on the extent of the outbreak or on、um, you know specific practical information about how they can protect themselves or or get diagnosed and treated if they need to? So、um, for the past month, I would say. The mainland Chinese publication has been doing a really great job on that, and including people, including my parents. You know,、uh, doesn't matter if you are a media professional or just like normal residents. And many people I know, they're relying on information like news articles published by publications like Caixin and Fenghuang. You know, they've been doing very great job, and they're publishing like、um, very inside、uh, information. Um, at a very fast speed, yeah. So you know the the thing the articles that we share in our family group chat are largely like Caixin's new latest articles and like Peng Pai's, you know, this couple of media. How much do people that you talk to know about this timeline, and how do they feel generally about the government's response? So yes, I think people generally know because、um, as I just mentioned, the、uh, many mainland Chinese. Many mainland、um, news outlets they have reported on it,、uh, and you know it was in a 
we know that the censorship was not that heavy so that, you know, people like my parents had a chance to read those articles and understand that there, there were definitely some cover up by the at least the local government in the very beginning. Um, and you, people are mad. But, but the thing is, like, just based on my conversation with all my friends and families on, in, in Wuhan right now, I would say, you know, being mad at the government is not the main sentiment uh, of what they are feeling right now. The main sentiment is that they are anxious and they are scared of the disease itself, and they hope they don't get sick. They, don't, they hope that their family don't get sick. And if you are in a safer space, like let's say like if you, you know, if you have been quarantining yourself at home for like 14 days and you are not sick, then I would say people at, at who is at this point can are like more have a little bit more time to get mad at the government and you know discuss on that and yeah so people this is a public knowledge I would say at least among Wuhan people that there are cover ups um, but that the what the people what people feel mainly is not like mad at the government and. Even there are people who are mad at the government. They are very mad at the Chinese government. Uh, sorry, they are very mad at the Wuhan government, but not the central government. I, I want to um, ask you another question about how uh, how people are feeling about the reliability of information that they're getting. Um, I remember during the SARS outbreak of 2003, I was living in Beijing and and reporting on it. And there was a moment when, thanks to some high-ranking whistleblowers uh, who were both doctors and senior government officials, China's leaders were forced to essentially concede that they had covered up the extent of the epidemic. They very suddenly revised the official number of SARS cases from, I think, about 40 to close to 400. And the same day, uh, they fired the health minister and the mayor of Beijing. Um, you know, and this was just a couple of days after they had been, uh, hospitals in Beijing had literally hidden uh, highly infectious, uh, very sick SARS patients from World Health Organization inspectors. Uh, in one case, uh, putting the patients into an ambulance and driving them around Beijing for several hours until the WHO in- inspectors left and in another case, transferring them from their hospital beds to a hotel. And when the true numbers came out, nobody in Beijing believed them. Everyone assumed that the outbreak was far more extensive than it actually was, and there were a couple of weeks of real panic and anger at the government. You were in Wuhan in school at the time, and I just wonder, what do you remember about SARS, and are people similarly skeptical of the information that the government is providing now or more trusting? I, so yes, I was in a, I I was in school. I was a student in Wuhan uh, when SARS broke out. Um, I don't remember that much um, because SARS was not like Wuhan was not, um, you know, a city that had a very serious situation, but I do remember, um, that we were burning vinegar in our school. So I mean, that was the first time I ever smelled burned vinegar. Um, and that smell just like stuck in my mind, like all these years. Um, 
but I think our, you know, like my parents and our teachers are relatively um, calm and we didn't really like stop the classes or anything. Um, and this time, I would say like just from my conversations with um, my friends and families in Wuhan, people definitely have, people are like skeptical. Um, like it's not, it's not the, the skepticism doesn't show us like, you know, in a conversation, um, they won't just tell me it's like, they must be lying. They're not going to say anything like that. But then we would discuss, we would like throwing doubts around. Like I would brought up to my parents, say like, it's so weird that we have all these cases outside of China, but like the number is uh, remain the same in Wuhan. And then we responded like, yeah, that is weird. Uh, maybe something weird about the virus, but yeah, don't you, you don't think they're gonna, they are covering it up, right? You know, it's, it's more like this. It's, I don't think people are like that sure the government is covering up, but they are not excluding that possibility. I'm also curious to hear how easy you feel it has been for local reporters to report and publish their reporting. We talked about this a few minutes ago, but you and I got a glimpse of some fairly alarming censorship early on. It was January 23rd, uh, the day that the lockdown of Wuhan began. I was in Hong Kong, you were in New York, and we were both glued to our computers watching the news. And Saishin, which, as, as you just said, it was a business news magazine that's one of the most independent investigative news outlets in China, uh, posted a story that quoted several doctors in Wuhan estimating that there were as many as six or 7,000 cases uh, in Wuhan. Of course, now there are more than 20,000 confirmed cases. But at the time, there were just, I think, about 100. And we, or a couple hundred, we translated that line uh, of that news report and we quickly tweeted it. We tweeted out the link from uh, China Files Twitter account um, where, if I can just pause to make a tiny pitch here, we're posting all kinds of updates in uh, video and photos. Anyway, a few minutes later, uh, people started complaining that we had translated the story wrong. And they said that it, the story had actually said that doctors predicted that there could eventually be as many as six to 7,000 cases. So we looked at the story and there was the word eventually, which kind of means like in the end. And fortunately, you, Mui, had taken a screen grab of the article when you first read it. And we compared the, your screen grab with the article as it was then appearing on Taishin's website. And we realized that that word had been added after the story had originally been, been uh, published. But there was no correction posted, you know, for what was a major difference in the facts of the story. Uh, and so we were very curious about that. And um, we showed these two different versions of the story to folks on Twitter. And then you got on the phone and spoke to some friends in the Saishi newsroom, and they were fuming because it turned out that they had been ordered to add the word eventually to the piece, and it was the first version that had actually been correct. So how much are you hearing that that kind of thing is still happening? And um, in the days since then, there's been some really strong reporting from members of the Chinese press. Do you think that's going to be able to continue? Uh, no, I am not positive about that because 
you know, like Taixin had some pressure on that piece um, as well as many other pieces, but at least they could publish them at that time. Um, but I have multiple journalist friends from different uh, mainline Chinese media have been telling me in the past two days that the very heavy censorship has kicked in. Um, you know, multiple news outlets have received orders to be, um, to, you know, either be very careful publishing the future news or even they, they might need to like delete some of their previous news. That's why there are someone, some volunteers online, they actually now made a list of all the previous um, news articles from mainland news outlets together. Uh, and then, you know, just during the time, like they put this list in the pa on, uh, past Saturday and um, some friends and I, we start to translate them uh, and archive them. And just in the process of us archiving it, and we, we realized some link was like initially available and then like it's, it, it's like uh, just invalid right now. So, you know, so these are already published stories that are already starting to disappear from the internet. Yes, yes, there are a couple of stories like that. Yeah. And then also, um, I remember it was Monday when I woke up. And I, I was, you know, every day I woke up, first thing is like I got my WeChat and just like see what's the latest. And I remember Monday morning, I opened my WeChat and I had the sense of the virus already disappeared. And every the whole WeChat just like looks so different. The things people share, it's it's I don't know why is is it's just like there are like not much like critical articles coming out in the past day. It just all of a sudden the whole contents of what everyone are sharing are different. I don't know what made that happen, but it has been like this for the past two days. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Yeah. Yesterday. China's leader, Xi Jinping, held a meeting of the Politburo Standing Committee. These are the guys that run the country to respond to the crisis. And he said the virus had become, uh, and I'm quoting here from state media reports about that meeting, a major test of China's system and capacity for governance. And he seemed uh, in his other comments to sort of indirectly blame local officials for the outbreak. He said, you know, that it, that the government wouldn't tolerate um, uh, bureaucratism and uh, officials shirking off their responsibilities, which sort of seemed like an implicit criticism of the government in Wuhan. And then, then today, the People's Daily front page editorial called the response to the virus a people's war, and they urged readers to more closely rally around the Chinese Communist Party with comrade Xi Jinping at the core uh, if they hope to win this war. So how do you feel about this and how are people that you're talking to feeling about Xi Jinping's role in the response to the outbreak? I personally don't feel that, I mean, I think what's, what, what the central governments and the local governments are doing right now is just like trying to push responsibilities to each other. Because a couple of days ago, you know, like when um, the Wuhan's mayor was questioned on TV, um, 
like about their previous decision of uh, delaying releasing the news to the public. And he said like, oh, we need to notify our upper level. You know, he's like implying that uh, they, he, uh, he did what he's supposed to do. And just like the upper level didn't give him approval to release the news to the public. And now the central government, you know, they are, they said they're going to publish the, punish the local level officials and they are doing so. You know, they, pub- they punished uh, several officials, you know, uh, Hubei Records yesterday and also a couple of other officials uh, in Wuhan, Wuhan government because, you know, people are complaining that some Wuhan government official uh, get some masks from the Records, things like that. And also they punished uh, uh, Huang Gang, uh, Huang Gang's um, official, just because like she couldn't really answer questions on TV. I, that's another I city in in Hubei. You should just, yeah, Huang yeah, Gang that's is another, another city in Hubei. Yeah, yes, and it has um, the second largest amount of patients um, other than Wuhan right now. So I think I actually think if the Wuhan's mayor is telling the truth. Uh, which I tend to believe that because they might actually need to uh, report what they know to the upper level. Because I think since, you know, Xi Jinping um, become the, our president and the government tend to have this mm, culture um, that, you know, less and less people are uh, willing to stand out and like speaking the truth in, like inside of the party and inside of the government. So, you know, if some, if, if he's saying that, you know, he needs, he needs the upper level to approve and he doesn't want to mis- make a mistake because he decided to do something that, um, that he thinks he's supposed to do. I'm not saying that that's what he thinks. I'm just saying like, based on what he's telling us, I, I'm not going to be surprised if that's the truth. And I think the whole system right now, um, is cultivating is and encouraging people to not speaking out and to follow this one leader. And I actually think that's the root of a lot of problems right now. I don't know many other, because like, I don't, I only talk about this with people, with uh, other Chinese people, you know, overseas. I don't really talk to this with my, with my uh, friends and family in Wuhan via WeChat. So I don't really know what they think about what, about Xi Jinping. Um, but I, some friends here, you know, in the U.S. do share same thoughts with me, similar thoughts. Yeah. Hmm. One more question. Um, and this is just a broad question. Just given your extensive contact with people living in Wuhan, what, if anything, do you think is being missed in the coverage of the outbreak that we're reading? Um, what should we be paying attention to that we're not? I do think, you know, so far we have whistleblowers from hospitals, from medical world, you know, uh, who is speaking out to, to tell us about uh, what was the early days like when they first noticed uh, this virus. But then so far we don't have any whistleblowers from inside of the government unlike when you were covering SARS at that time. So I think this is one of the major things that we are missing this time. So we might never know what actually happened, you know, if Wuhan government reported to upper level. So who is the main person to be blamed for this outbreak, for this man-made disaster? We still don't know. We might never know because of that. Well, we'll keep talking. Thanks, Mui. Um, Thank you, Susie. Thank you for listening to Asia In Depth. 
You can check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Tom Nagorski. We'll see you next time.